All right, Mark chapter 6. I want to share with you something that's been stirring in my spirit. Mark chapter 6, I want to read it, uh, these first few verses in your hearing tonight. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 1 in the New King James Version says this, Then he, Jesus, went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, uh, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there in Nazareth, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. I want to minister from that passage about missing the Messiah. Missing the Messiah. This is one of those passages, the Holy Ghost directed me to it, but I'll be honest with you, I was, I was scanning the Gospel of Mark, asking the Lord, what do I need to minister on a Wednesday night like this, that we've been reading the book of Mark together. And if I would be honest, I was, I was looking, I was searching for a passage much like this one that admittedly I have read many times, and it's one of those passages that's only six verses long, and I'm very prone to just read through it and just keep on going. And the Lord stopped me here on this passage and just started to stir my spirit this week. There's an old proverb, the earliest uh, version of it, they trace back to 550 years before Christ uh, in a package of literature you might know called Aesop's Fables. And in its most modern English form, this short proverb is given to us in English by the one and only Mark Twain. And the proverb is this, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. What it means is, if it needs explanation at all, is that if you know someone very well, you st- or when something is talked about so often, we start to develop a complacency about it. That's what it means when we say familiarity breeds contempt. But this proverb, like any other proverb, is not a 100% guarantee. It's proverbial. By its very nature, it's, it, it, it's an explanation of what usually is the case, but not always the case. And I make that distinction tonight to say that familiarity does not always inevitably have to breed contempt. It's just that by its nature, most of the time it does. I want to tell you tonight about one ingredient that you can add, that You can add to your relationship with God. You can be as close to Jesus and as familiar with Jesus as possible. 
And it will not, if you add this one ingredient, it will not develop into the kind of contempt and offense that we see present in Nazareth in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to tell you about that ingredient later. I'm going to leave you hanging for a little while. The English Standard Version of this passage translates this passage a little differently than the New King James. Only really in the sense that the punctuation, the sentences are chopped up a little differently. And if you've got an English Standard Version, it has the same exact sense of what's going on. You don't really miss anything. It's, it reads almost exactly the same. But I like the way the English Standard Version translates it for this reason and this reason only. That when the people see Jesus in the English Standard Version, it translates their sayings into five questions. There's five questions that they ask. And let's look at them together. Mark chapter 6 verse 2 says, On the Sabbath Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. And they said, and here's the questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? The word of God says that they were astonished. Now the Greek word there, if you were to take it in its most extreme literal sense, it's a word that means knocked out. They were knocked out by his teaching. They were just floored by the teaching that Jesus was doing in the synagogue. It started, their reaction to Jesus started with astonishment. They were floored at what this man was teaching. But then it didn't take very long and they start batting around these questions together. And in verses 2 and 3, we, st- we kind of get a synopsis of what the consensus started to look like when they started to bat these questions around. And it comes in the form of these five questions. And you'll see the question words that are present. Where? What? How? And then they start to question who? And in doing this, they found themselves in a position where they were missing the Messiah. Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. This was where he had grown up. He had been a child in Nazareth. He'd been an adolescent, a young man in Nazareth. They knew something of Jesus in Nazareth. And by this point, Jesus wasn't just a new-on-the-scene person, but Jesus, at this point in his ministry, had already established himself as a traveling teacher, a rabbi, a miracle worker. Something good to do if you're reading the Gospel of Mark. Maybe count the number of miracles that Jesus does. Just count it. I counted it, and to this point, at the beginning of Mark chapter 6, Jesus has done 10 miracles. I think. Is it 10? 10. 10 miracles. And two of them were actually uh, instances where it says that Jesus did many miracles. So we kind of lump them all together as one, but in actuality, there was a couple of these 10 where it says that he did, he did many miracles. He, he went around healing people, and it came out to more than one miracle, but it all happened in one time and one place. Ten miracles that Jesus had done just by the beginning of Mark chapter 6. And we, like Jesus, like the people in Nazareth, his teachings will astonish us, but that's not enough. His miracles may captivate you, but that's not enough. 
His background may not impress you, but that doesn't really matter. The attitude of the people in Nazareth was, in essence, are you kidding me? They go to synagogue on Sabbath. That was the community gathering center. Everything happened at the synagogue. It was the religious center. It's where the politics happened. It's where a lot of the thing, a lot of life was centered around for them. And this was the high holy day of their week. It was the Sabbath day. They go to they go to synagogue on Sabbath. The whole community is gathered together in Nazareth. And who is who's there? But the local hometown guy. Jesus is back in town, and Jesus is the special guest speaker that day at synagogue, and Jesus is picking up the scroll, and Jesus is reading from the scroll, and teaching, and talking, and explaining the word of God, and as they all stand there, they are astonished at what Jesus, this is Jesus, they're standing there like, are you kidding me? Is it, this is the carpenter guy, isn't it? What happened? They're astonished. They're saying, are you kidding me? The real question at the heart of everything that they were thinking, the real question, if you had to put it in a word, was how? How is this possible? Have you ever come up on somebody that you haven't seen in a long time and they've changed and they're like a different level of successful than the last time? Like they've done well for themselves and you're just sitting there like, how? How is this possible? You're, just, you're kind of like astonished. And maybe it's not coming from like a critical, mean-spirited place, but you're still like just, you're flabbergasted. You're perplexed. That's kind of the position they found themselves in, except it wasn't really good-spirited. They weren't super impressed. They kind of scoffed a little bit. And they started to ask these questions. And then in verse 3, it says they took offense at him. And in spite of all the clear evidence of who Jesus was, it's still possible to reject Jesus. That ought to be very sobering to us. That even the most committed and dedicated of believers can know Jesus and reject him and be offended towards him. I want to open your eyes a little wider. We've been reading in the Gospel of Mark. Maybe you've read in the Gospel of Mark, and you've read chapter 6 a few days ago. And I want to open your eyes a little bit wider tonight if I can. And I want to show you that these questions that they ask, they, they aren't just questions. And this is where I've read past it, and maybe you have too. I know I have. I've read past this, and I've never really stopped and dug in any. Uh, these questions aren't just questions. These are very derisive questions. They're very, they have a very mean-spirited tone to them. And sometimes in, uh, in our translations and in the way that we read it, we can, we can just read past it like, ah, oh, they're just asking some innocent questions. These questions are, are, are pretty mean-spirited, and let me show you how. The first, one of the questions they ask him is they say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the carpenter? Listen to what this insinuates back then. You have to understand what the world was like in the first century. And it was a Greco-Roman world. They have different values. The Greco-Roman world was not like the Jewish world. And the Greco-Roman world had a different cultural value set. And people that worked with their hands were not thought highly of. Blue-collar people were not thought highly of by the Greco-Roman establishment. And this type of thinking was leaching out into the Jewish community. And these people 
when they asked, isn't this the carpenter? It was, it, it was in a sense saying, you know, isn't this guy just a commoner who works with his hands? Isn't this just the Jesus guy who, who they, they, they saw, they remembered him as the, the young man that would always have his hands dirty uh, from the work of a carpentry shop. And they missed the Messiah that day because they said, you know what? Isn't this just Jesus who built my kitchen table? Isn't this just Jesus who repaired my door, who did some carpentry work for me a few years ago? Isn't this, isn't this just Jesus? You can hear how the tone's a little bit different when you understand the background of what the way of thinking back then was. You can see the next question they ask, isn't he the son of Mary? And, and it's true, they didn't mention Joseph, and some people have speculated that's because Joseph was already dead. But most people agree that this is not just the fact that Joseph has already passed on. Most people think that this is them asking, isn't he the son of Mary? That this is a cheap shot at the scandal of his birth. That this Jesus was the Ill illegitimate child born to a whore. This is a slur directed at Jesus. And then they start to ask about his brothers, James and Joseph and Judah and Simon, all named after big historical figures in Jewish history. A couple of them named after the patriarchs. A couple of them named after revolutionary figures in recent history. They, they, they were named after famous figures. And they start to say, you know what? Isn't this just the same Jesus? He comes from this family where, the, you know, here's these other guys. And he's just one of them. And their Redeemer was standing right there in their midst, and they missed it. They missed the Messiah. They, in a sense, they said, you, you know what, Jesus, you're nothing special. You're just one of us. And this, my friends, is how Jesus can become a stumbling block to some. I hope tonight that he is your cornerstone. I hope you've decided to already make Jesus your cornerstone. If you haven't made him the cornerstone of your life, I want to... I want to strongly encourage you to make Jesus and to set Jesus as the cornerstone of your life. You can count on Jesus. But this right here, this familiarity, left unchecked and let run unaddressed, is what can cause Jesus to stop being your cornerstone and start being a stumbling block. Their cornerstone was standing right there in their midst in Nazareth that day. And he became a stumbling block for them. And if you don't include the special ingredient that I'm going to tell you about in a little while, this exact same thing will befall each one of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians about this very thing, about Jesus being a stumbling block. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of of this world for since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe for the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. When someone rises up 
behind this pulpit and preaches Jesus, we ought to be enthused about that message. I want to remind you, I've taught about it a couple times, but your amen carries power. I've heard it said before that half of the message is preached by the congregation. Because whenever we have the enthusiasm where we say yes to the message of Jesus, where we haven't grown complacent and we haven't let Jesus become a stumbling block to us because we've gained so much familiarity with him that we've lost sight that he is the Savior, he is the Messiah, and if not for Jesus, I would be lost on my way to a devil's hell. When we get a hold of our enthusiasm and our zeal for the message of Jesus, for the identity of Jesus, the congregation preaches half the message. It opens the eyes of unbelievers who are among us, who haven't yet been convinced and persuaded that Jesus is Lord. It convinces them and says, you know what? There is something to this message. I'm going to take a second look at Jesus. I'm astonished at some of his teachings, but maybe there's some other things I'm unconvinced about. But because I'm in the, in the presence of some people that seem convinced persuaded and enthused about the message of Jesus. It hasn't become old news to them. I might just take a second look, look at this Jesus. I might take a second look at what it means to be born again of the water and of the Spirit. That's my cornerstone. Jesus is everything to me. He's my foundation. And it goes beyond Hear me, in that moment that I just described, it goes beyond what I feel in the moment. And it has to come from what I know to be true of Him. Beyond what I feel, beyond what my emotions tell me, beyond what my energy level may try to permit me to do, I have to dig down into what I know is true. That Jesus is my cornerstone. And Jesus can be someone else's cornerstone. That there's no life that's out of alignment so much that my cornerstone can't bring it into alignment again. That was one of the failures of Nazareth. A Jew from nowhere was executed unjustly. And you're telling me he is the savior of the whole world and the only savior of the whole world? Their posture towards that kind of message was to say, that's impossible. And in fact, I'm offended by it. They missed the Messiah because they were offended. That's what the word of God says. They took offense at Jesus. The Greek word there is the same word that we use for scandal. It's it, it, it transliterated. It sounds it's it's scandalo scandalismi. It's it, you can look at the word when it's put into English letters and you can see the word scandal. That's what it was. It was scandalous to them that this Jesus that they knew so well was standing in their synagogue on the Sabbath day. And that he was teaching the way that he was teaching. That he was working miracles the way that he was working miracles. They couldn't stomach the idea that this Jesus could possibly be the Messiah. He offended their personal sensibilities. They couldn't deny his works. They couldn't handle his words. But they didn't care. 
in spite of the overwhelming evidence that was already accumulating about who this Jesus of Nazareth really was. They would not, they could not believe that he was the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God. And what do we do when our expectations of Jesus don't line up perfectly with what Jesus is saying and doing? That's really what we're driving at here. That's really what happened in Nazareth. If we were to shrink it down into its most basic form, we would ask ourselves the challenging question, which has been stirring my spirit for days now. What do we do? How do I respond when my expectations of what I think Jesus ought to be saying and doing doesn't match up with what Jesus is actually saying and doing? How do I respond in that moment? One possible response that you can choose is offense. I wouldn't recommend it. Let's return to the question. How can you have a close knowledge of Jesus like these citizens of Nazareth had? How can you have an established friendship with the Lord and not end up in the attitude of Nazareth? Because here's the thing. I, I found myself at the end of my studies, at the end of my prayer time, I found myself with this, this uh, established thought. I don't want to end up with the attitude that Nazareth had. I don't want to, I'm not interested. I don't want to go down that road. And I found myself asking, what is it that can help me stay away? I want to get as close to Jesus as I possibly can, Brother Turner. I want to get as close to him as I can. I want to have closeness with him. I want to have friendship with him. I don't want to have to know Jesus from a distance. You might say, I do want to be familiar with Jesus. I don't want him to be a foreign subject to me. I want to be familiar with Jesus. But I do not want to be offended at Jesus. I do not want Jesus to become familiar to me if it means that he becomes my stumbling block and I miss heaven. How is it then that I can get close to Jesus, that I can follow Jesus earnestly with everything that I have, that I can become familiar and have an established friendship with Jesus as a follower of his and not end up like these people in Nazareth? It comes down to the special ingredient. I told you I was going to tell you about the special ingredient. You already know what the special ingredient is because you've already heard it tonight. Jesus told you what the special ingredient was. How can you get close to Jesus? How can you be familiar with Jesus and not become offended with Jesus? Jesus already told you. It was in the text that we read. The special ingredient is honor. Honor. What does Jesus do in response to what's happening in Nazareth that day? He has one thing to say. Verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. If you fail to honor Jesus' actions and words, if you, have, if you attempt to have a relationship with Jesus, if you try to gain closeness with Jesus, but you fail or you start to fail to honor him as Lord and Savior, then your faith will wither. And you will end up in exactly the condition of the citizens of Nazareth. We see this reality about honor play itself out in human relationships. Let me put it in the context that maybe 
maybe you can understand and, and maybe you can relate to or maybe you've seen or maybe you just hypothetically can, can imagine. But in marriage, if you're married to somebody, in marriage you have closeness. At the very least, you have closeness of proximity. You live together. And most of the time in marriage, you have an extensive knowledge of one another. But if you have those things, if you have the proximity closeness, and you have that extensive knowledge of one another, but there is no honor between the two parties in a marriage, then the relationship will shrivel up. And what will happen is things like contempt and resentment and suspicion will start to crop up and start to grow in the garden of that marriage where there is no honor going both ways between husband and wife. I only bring that up not to start marriage counseling tonight, but to make the point that the same is true in other relationships as well. And when you try to get close to someone, even the Lord, and you try to follow Jesus closely, and you try to gain familiarity with Jesus, but you start failing to honor him and recognize him that he is not just the homeboy from Nazareth, but he is the Lord, you'll find yourself in a very dangerous place. Nazareth couldn't clearly see who Jesus was because they were familiar with him, but they did not hold him in honor. That was their problem. That was the essence of their problem. Jesus prescribed it. He, he diagnosed it right there on the spot. He said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country. They knew Jesus, but they didn't honor Jesus. And because of that, Jesus was devalued in their eyes. And it is an everlasting judgment against them. Think of it like this. Jesus, by this point in the Gospel of Mark, you've been digging through the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, by this point in the Gospel of Mark, has gained some notoriety. He started to gain some fame. In Mark chapter 5, he, he, they go across the Sea of Galilee, and he meets up with, the, it's the famous story, the, the, the guy that's possessed with a legion of devils. He's cutting himself in the tomb. I mean, it's a whole mess, right? That's Mark chapter 5. Jesus deals with all that. I mean, that's just one snapshot picture of what Jesus' ministry looks like so far. There's a track record of Jesus' teaching, his miracles, all the things that are accompanying his ministry. And Jesus, in the middle of all that, he thinks enough of his hometown to make a special stop in his travels so that he can spend time with them, so that he can teach them, so that he can do miracles in his hometown. He honored his hometown enough. He thought enough of his hometown to do that. But they didn't think enough of Jesus to allow him to do what he wanted to do. He wanted to do that more than anything else with the people he knew the best. And he couldn't. Did you know there's only two times in the Bible where Jesus marvels? There's only two times where Jesus marvels. One of them is here in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 verse 5 says, He could do no mighty work there 
except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus found himself in a set of circumstances in Nazareth that he was not able, he was not free to exercise his power the way that he, had, he wanted to. Their lack of faith restricted his activity. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. The other time that Jesus marveled is told in Matthew chapter 8. And it makes clear what Jesus can do when we allow him to minister at his full potential. Is that what we want? That's what I want. I want Jesus. I want every day of my life, but when we come together as well. I want any time we come together, Jesus to be able to minister to his absolute full potential. I want him, Brother Burke, I want Jesus to do everything he wants to do every time we're together. I want every, every person that Jesus wants to heal, I want him to be healed. Every person Jesus wants to fill with the Holy Ghost, I want God's spirit to be poured out into their life. Every person that Jesus wants to wash their sins away, I want to see their sins washed away. I don't want anything held back. I want everything that Jesus can possibly do every single day of my life. I want it all. I want it all. And I know you feel the same way. And in Matthew chapter 8, we get a picture of what can happen when somebody takes that approach. When we don't miss the Messiah, when we make Jesus our Messiah. Matthew chapter 8 verse 5 says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Pleading with Jesus, pleading with Jesus. Notice, there's a whole lot of difference here. There's not just an astonished like, huh, look at this. Are you kidding me? Here in this story, we have a centurion, and he explodes onto the scene, desperate, pleading with Jesus, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. It's just as easy as that. I think that's the kind of stuff Jesus was willing to do in Nazareth. I think that's the kind of thing that Jesus is willing to do here. I got some amens from Na Jesus was willing to do it in Nazareth, but when I say he's willing to do it here, we got quiet. I said, those are some of the things Jesus is willing to do here. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying, in essence, those who honor me with their sincere belief, I will bring them into the kingdom. And those who think that they've made it already and will not honor me 
will be cast out. Mr. Kelly, if you'd come to the keyboard. If anyone should know who Jesus is, it should be us. I told you it's been stirring in my spirit this week. Sometimes it's possible that we spend so much time with somebody that we grow to no longer appreciate them. And this short passage in Mark chapter 6 stands as a warning. A warning against the ever-present danger that we must guard against. In a sense, I would submit to you tonight that we should never get comfortable with Jesus. His goal is not to make us comfortable. He is not our buddy. He is not our pal. He is not a genie in a bottle. He is not just an on-call handyman carpenter who repairs your problems. Nazareth should have been a friendly territory for Jesus to work. Jesus should have been able to walk into Nazareth and there should have been an explosion of the supernatural. There should have been miracles on a degree to a magnitude that had never been seen before. Nazareth should have been ground zero for the most tremendous work that Jesus ever did short of Calvary. Because it was filled with individuals who knew Jesus. All the ingredients were there there was just one ingredient missing and it was honor and because there was no honor instead of being friendly territory it was unfriendly territory and Jesus was only very limited in what he could do in Nazareth based on what I see in Mark I ask myself what is the kind of thing that Jesus enjoys doing? His goal is to have people confess him as Lord and Christ. His goal is to bring people to repentance and a new birth experience. His goal is to heal the hurting and to set their feet on a rock. In this church, in every gathering that we have, must always be an environment that's friendly to that kind of ministry. This ought to be the friendliest, most conducive environment for the new birth experience, for being honest about sin, for believing for the miraculous. This ought to be the place where anything can happen. We don't want to be scoffers or people who are too cool or so advanced. I refuse to grow complacent about the one who saved me. I refuse to grow complacent and unenthusiastic about the message of Jesus Christ. I want it to do the same thing for me today that it did the first time that I heard that Jesus loved me and died for me. I don't want to be lukewarm about it. I don't want to be complacent about it. I want to have the same kind of fire and the same kind of fervor and the same kind of honor I want to have honor in my worship. I want to have honor for God in the way I treat people. I want to have honor for God in the way that I find an altar. And I respond to the word of God. And I say, God, be it unto me. 
Change me, oh God. I don't want to be so laid back that we aren't enthusiastic about the very fundamental things that make up the kingdom of God. The message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The new birth experience. What it means to be a Christian and to be formed in His likeness. They missed the Messiah. They missed the Messiah because they failed to honor Him. Can we stand all over this room just as a way of saying, you know what, let's settle it. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. Let's raise our hands all over this room right now and just say this prayer. Lord, I'm going to make sure my heart is aligned. I'm going to honor you right now by pouring myself out to you. These altars are open right now. I want somebody to say, you know what, it doesn't matter how close I get to Jesus, I'm going to honor him. It doesn't matter how long I've been living for the Lord, I'm never going to cease honoring him, acknowledging him. I'm never going to grow casual in my relationship. Come on, this isn't an altar call for casual. This isn't a moment for casual. I'm asking for enthusiasm. I'm asking for zeal right now. I'm asking for real love for God. Say this truth, I love this truth. I've bought it and I'm not going to sell it. Come on, no matter how long I follow Jesus, I'm not going to grow casual because He's the Lord. He's the Lord and He's my Lord. He washed my sins away. He did for me what no one else could do.